everyone, and welcome to J welcome to the show. Um, today we have Jason and Margot. We are so excited to welcome the team from Ancient Fire on. If we can get started by having you guys introduce yourselves, that would be awesome. I'm Jason Phelps. I am co-owner and mead maker of Ancient Fire Mead and Cider in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, I am Margot Phelps, co-owner and general manager of Ancient Fire Mead and Cider in Manchester, New Hampshire. So let's start to get into a little bit of the background of the meadery. How did you guys decide to start a meadery? What led you into making mead in the first place? And why did you settle on mead as opposed to some other alcoholic beverages? And it's awesome because we answer, we love to answer all those questions because we have some pretty interesting answers for several of them. So this has been a nearly 20, long, 20 year journey for us. So we started as homebrewers back in 2003. Um, this is one of those very much happy accident stories. Um, so I was diagnosed and treated for cancer in 2003 and about, I want to say maybe six months or so after my initial diagnosis, um, I had finished treatment, starting to feel better. And Margot asked me if I was interested in doing something other than working all the time. And it is, I have told people so many times since this is one of those questions when people ask, you need to stop and listen because they're asking you more than the words that came out of their mouth. They're giving you an opportunity to say, hey, you know, do you think you might want to do something different? Um, and I blurted out I wanted to be able to brew my own beer at home. If you ask me why, I'll tell you something different every time because the honest truth is we don't actually remember. <laughs> I do not remember what my motivations were to actually say that. To be totally honest with you, we've, we've gone through this so many times. It was not a topic of conversation that had been frequently discussed between the two of us. It, it was very much just total serendipity that she asked that question. Something must have triggered it in my mind. And I said, hey, I want to do this. And then she said, well, go get your stuff. And so that fall, we started brewing beer and we had so much to learn. We didn't know how to do it. We'd never done it before. We didn't have any friends who had actually done it that could give us a heads up on it. But I like to cook and therefore I'd spend a good deal of time in the kitchen. So it felt to me like this is something I could learn how to do. Um, so we set about doing it. The first couple of beers we made were pretty good. And, you know, there's so many details between then and now. And you could sum that up being that it was just continued sort of doubling down on learning more. O always someone says, oh, have you ever made this before? No. And then, of course, I'm looking it up, trying to figure out what is that? Well, what would I make it out of? Why would I make it? What would it taste like? Is, is that actually good? And it's just every, you know, every right and left turn, just trying to figure out, ooh, is there something fun down here? You know, all kinds of styles of beer. Realizing I live in Londonderry, New Hampshire, and we've got three huge apple farms in town. So that means I can get cider and make hard cider, right? I, I love hard cider. I'm, I'm a New Englander. So it's something I've known for a long time. Um, so that, that's how we got started, you know, on a, on a journey of, of wanting to make beverages. The translation into the meadery is, is another real interesting one. It was basically um, an accident. Uh, <laughs> so he was making fruit wines and he's like, well, I keep adding table sugar because that's usually what you add when you make a fruit wine at home is you add like white sugar um, to have enough for the yeast to eat. And he's like, you know, honey has sugar in it. Like, why don't I try to make a fruit wine instead of table sugar? I'll just use honey. Uh, so he did, and it was a blackberry nutmeg wine, um, and he entered it in the Indianapolis, Indiana State, Fair. Indiana State Fair, and it took a gold medal. 
Uh, so I was shocked. By. I'm like, okay, I, I don't even know how to make this stuff. I'm just exciting surprise. Yeah, we're on to so, something here. Yeah, so we brought it. We brought it to our brew club meeting, and uh, we had a couple friends try it. And we told them what it was, and they're like, "Oh, so you made mead?" And we're like, "We made what now?" Like we didn't even know what it was. And now, and then it, from there, it became, you know, like he said, he likes to research stuff. And it was like, what's mead? How do you make mead? This stuff is cool. Let's ferment whatever we can. And it kind of took off from there. Yeah, I, I, I've gotten into winemaking quite a bit, just because, again, you're using the same equipment and the outcome is somewhat similar. You're making bottled product to have at home that you would normally go to the store and buy. You know, some of it was really good. Some of it was good. Some of it was not so good. And, you know, there were lots of opportunities to learn. And so I, I came at my mead making the same way I was making my wines because I saw a lot of parallels in that. And for the longest time, people kept asking like, hey, what are you guys going to do with this? Going to start a brewery? Going to start a cidery? Going to start a meadery? No, no. I, I, I'm a software engineer. I have a good job. This is, a, this is great because it can pay for this fun hobby. You know, I, I started a blog. I, I started writing for several national publications. So that had me on the road traveling to different places and, and, and teaching seminars and, and getting up in front of, of rooms full of people and, and, and talking about the adventure. And, you know, so that was just a ton of fun to do. And, and I wasn't thinking about turning it into a job because I already had one that was working out all right. But long about 2016, um, two things happened. One, I started looking at my 25-year career in IT and realizing I just wasn't enjoying it that much anymore. <laughs> um, and secondly, I started getting very serious feedback from other commercial peers going, no, this stuff is really good. And, and we really like to see good, talented people go into the marketplace because it helps everybody when we've got more good product out there. You're really passionate about it. I mean, you would sell the crap out of this stuff and, and it would be good for everyone. And it really got me thinking. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I guess I really never thought about it that way that, you know, I could provide another example of, of well-made mead and, and then entertain, you know, possibly a huge fan base with it. So that turned into starting on a business plan. And here we are. Yeah, he proved to me that it was a, a thing that he could do well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when one of your first ones that you really get into gets you a gold medal, that's a good sign, good omen to start it, right? Yep. yep. And, and I actually took that so seriously that we began entering quite a few homebrew competitions. And over the years, we actually earned 120 medals for, for our, our competition beverages, but seriously to the point where I actually got certified as a beer and mead judge, because I wanted to learn what the people that I was asking to judge my stuff knew so that I could pay that favor back to the homebrew community. And for years, I, I loved doing that. You know, I, I maybe six or eight Saturdays a year, I'd be somewhere judging beer or mead or cider for the day. It's not as fun as you, it sounds. It's work. It's work. <laughs> People are like, oh, you're drinking all day. What a sacrifice. It's like, yeah, I'm drinking like 20 IPAs in a row and spitting out most of it. <laughs> but it, the, the experience was incredible. Like it, it gave me a whole new dimension of what I was trying to do. A lot more rigor in looking at my own stuff and understanding where there were balance problems and, and where there were potentially other flaws. So it gave me a lot of things to look at, but it, it I've told people it was one of the biggest changes in my product were when I was able to turn judging skills that I was, that I had honed onto my own stuff. And I was able to be as ruthless with it as I would be with anybody else's. I could take that seriously and I could say, okay, I have to make this better. I have to learn how. And so that was, 
it was a, a nice way to cap off all of that. The medals were great and it's awesome to get recognition, but the learning along the way and turning that back into, okay, the next time we make something, we're going to do this instead. Cause I think this is going to help us. It was so rewarding because the product just kept getting better and, and, doing it at home, it was amazing. Some people were like, you guys made this stuff at home? Yeah, we did. And, and you know, it was just because we, we cared enough about it that we were pouring tons of time, a lot of money to, into it. I, I tell people all the time, homebrewing, unfortunately, is not um, a cheap hobby. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> so that's actually something that I noticed in your website too, with the certification. And one thing I wanted to ask about, I know Bianca has taken a couple levels or taken some courses on sommelier and wine. How do you go about getting certified and really getting that knowledge? Because I'm sure you're not just rolling up saying, hey, give me this certification. You really have to know your stuff. So how do you learn that stuff, first of all? And then what's the process for actually getting certified? Definitely. So I actually had this question in the tap room the other day. Somebody mentioned, you know, I know there are sommeliers for wine and Cicerones for beer. Is there an equivalent for mead? And from a service perspective, there's actually not. Um, it could be considered a gap and I won't claim it isn't, but I'll also suggest that I'm not entirely sure that the development of that type of, of, of role where you're focused on service of mead in a, in a consumption environment, like a restaurant or a bar, there's not enough mead in those places yet for us to have somebody who would specialize in that wine and beer are certainly much more prevalent. So the certifications that I ended up getting were through the Beer Judge Certification Program. That is actually a, a, a sort of a partner organization with the American Homebrewers Association. So they basically, it's rooted in homebrew competitions. They, they have a series of, of um, style guides and ingredient guides and training guides for people. And they have a tiered program. So you, there's an entry level spot where you get in, you've got to take an online exam that go, covers a number of areas. So you, you know, you've got to at least be knowledgeable about the program itself and the style guide and, you know, the, the sort of the, the particulars about the beverage from a homebrew perspective. After that, it, it starts to translate into um, both written and tasting. So you've got to sit down and do a tasting and you've got to fill out a score sheet. You're judged on how well you fill out that score sheet by somebody who's in another room the same day you're taking your exam, judging the same exact glass. And this is someone who's a master level, perhaps, judge. So you're judged on how does your score sheet compare to theirs? So it's, it's and again, it reinforces that idea that we're trying to provide feedback to people who've entered a competition who want to learn what the objective qualities of their beverage are and anything that they could learn to make it better. So they, you know, they have you judged upon your ability to be able to do that, which is, again, it, it has some objective pieces, but it also comes back to how well can you articulate what you're smelling and tasting and, and how do you describe those things and then translate that into any advice that you might give for somebody. And it, tur it turns out it's pretty hard. I'll make the claim I'm okay at it. I think some of my friends would probably refute that, but I've seen some of my own score sheets in the past that were older because friends of mine got them back. And I'm like, oh my God, I wrote that and sent it back to you. Holy crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry about that. You know, and because you have to learn and it's, how do you learn hours of experience? I mean, people ask all the time because we have homebrewers that come in, they're thinking about opening a meadery or a brewery. And they're like, do you really need 20 years of experience leading up to it? I said, no, you don't, but it really does help. And also, uh, we found out a lot of this because we happened to join a really awesome homebrew club. 
um, a really large and old homebrew club. It's been around now for 27, 28 years. 91, actually. Yeah. It's coming so, up on 30. Yeah. So a long time. Um, and we lucked out that a lot of the people in that homebrew club um, were already certified judges. So we learned a lot from them. Um, and then a lot of those people also went on to open their own breweries. Um, and that was also a help to us when we went to go open Ancient Fires. We kind of had people that we could reach out to that we'd known for years to say, hey, you know, where do you get your growlers? Where do you get your glasses? Where, <laughs> like, what do we need to be careful of when we're opening for zoning? Um, so we often tell the home brewers that come in that probably the number one thing you can do is find a homebrew club and join. You'll learn a lot from people. Yeah, the one that we joined was was named Brew Free or Die, and it's based here in Southern New Hampshire. And I've told people it's an incubator. It, it absolutely it is. is. We've we've had. I think it's something crazy. It's like six or seven. Six breweries. or eight of us have gone commercial. <laughs> we've got one gentleman who a longtime member who owns a beer store locally that continues to get you know a reputation for one of the best local area craft beer stores. So you know he's on the on the sales side of it. But again, he he's been a homebrewer for a long time and he appreciates the quality of the products that he can get in there because he knows who his audience is. And it's a lot of other people that really love beer and and you know in some cases may have discerning tastes because of the same type of training that we've gotten. So it's another interesting segue. You asked about where where we think mead is getting this resurgence from based on its its long history. And I'll work backwards because the homebrew club to me has always been, I think, the key to that. I think mead is seeing a resurgence because over the last few decades, homebrewers have gotten really adventurous. And if you think about like the stereotypical homebrewer, they're always curious about what haven't I done yet? When you've got 30 styles of beer or 50 styles of beer or 20 styles of mead, it's going to take you a while to make them all, which means most people have never done it. And when someone comes to you and says, hey, look at this recipe book from the 1980s. It's got a recipe for mead in it. Do you even know what that is? Like, how, how would we do this? You've got people going to the store and buying honey and trying it. And then they're like, oh, this is neat. I can make beer and I can make cider and now I can make meat on top of it. So I think a lot of the resurgence is rooted there where homebrewers were just looking to do things that differentiated them. And, you know, the craft beer revolution has had a lot of homebrewers see a huge amount of success in jumping across that line from being someone who made it at home in their garage to potentially renting an industrial space, a much bigger garage, you know, and, and doing it there. And I think, me just sort of naturally got swept along because it was sort of out there. People didn't know that much about it. And what a cool opportunity. Yep. That's funny because it is the world's oldest fermented beverage. We have 10,000 years worth of history that suggests humans, whether they understood what they were doing or not, have fermented honey. So the fact that homebrewing, which really only became legal in the United States in the late 70s, could have carried... 10,000 years of history now back to a resurgence seems kind of odd, but there are thousands of homebrewers all across the country, all across the world. I feel like every time I've talked about mead with homebrewers, I get a reflection of them being interested in it as much as they're interested in a new style IPA or somebody's new crazy cider that they did. And I think that it, while it may seem weird for that to be the case, it, it always seemed that way to me. Pop culture is making its mark as well. There are there are TV shows out there that are rooted in in literature history that there are mentions of mead. Oddly enough, 
there's never meat on, on the screen for any of them, which is huge, a loss of opportunity in my opinion, but you know, it, it, it has brought people to it. So that, that's another place where I think a lot of spectators, people that are interested in it going, well, can I get me near me? And then they start looking and they potentially find a, a place like us that didn't, they didn't even know existed because we're small and, um, and relatively new. And then they come in and then they ask us and to find out that we don't watch any of those TV shows or don't know anything. I know zero things about Vikings. Yeah, the, the show Vikings <laughs> or Game of Thrones. Or... I have never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. I've never actually read Beowulf either. People ask me all the time. They're like, well, what were you reading? I'm like, I wasn't into fantasy when I was a kid. I it just... We have seen Lord of the Rings. That I True. will say. Yeah. So, so I, I think, you know, you've got this long history and a worldwide history. Almost every culture on this planet has come in contact with honey at some point. And many of them ultimately fermented it mostly accidentally, but then probably purposefully after that, cause they kind of figured out what was going on. Um, and the fact that it died off in so many places is a practical one. Other sugar sources came along and they were cheaper. Yeah. And fewer, um, it was really popular in the States for a while because of homesteaders. So if you, if you were a farmer way back in the day, um, the likelihood that you had a beehive was probably pretty high um, because you wanted your own honey to sweeten your coffee, sweeten your tea, sweeten whatever you need to sweeten. Um, so you would naturally take on, let's, let's ferment it as well and use it in another way. And when that started to kind of go away, I think mead kind of started to, to wane a little bit. But we're bringing it back. We are. <laughs> And, and we tell people we're not bringing it back in a particular historical context because that's not how we came to it. We're bringing it back from more of a creative context. Like what we do is a range of different things because we understood that we could offer the same excitement to people in a glass of mead that they're finding in a glass of beer these days. You know, there's 8,000 craft breweries in the United States and only about 500 meaderies. So we have a huge opportunity to do the same type of creative thing, but on a scale that isn't so obvious to everyone. So it's a lot of people are like, wow, this is amazing. I, I, I can't believe I finally, you know, it took me forever to find you guys. This stuff is incredible. You know, how come you're not everywhere and everybody knows about you? And I'm like, is that something we really want? It's, it's great for it to be, you know, boutique and have a loyal fan base. And for us to, you know, for Margo and I to be able to work in the tap room. I mean, even after nearly three years, we're here every week. We work directly with the public. We love sharing what we're doing in a very direct way. I, I, I don't look forward to the day that I have to make the difficult choice to hire someone to completely replace my presence in the tap room because I need to be elsewhere because this has been a huge part of how we've actually built our community too. And I, I don't want to take that away from people because they have had immense interest in learning about exactly what we're telling you guys today about how we got here, who we are, where this, this journey has taken us. And it is incredibly rewarding to be able to share that with people on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's where we come from it. A lot of people ask us about the history and we tell them there are details of the history that we're actually ignorant of. I mean, I, I, I just, I haven't had the time to really properly sit down and really understand what elements of the history of meat am I truly missing because I have to find sources that are not mainstream publications to help me, you know, fill in details that have been nearly lost to history. So we've answered two of your questions. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. And I know, I mean, as myself, I've always been a history buff and really into that stuff, into the Vikings and all that. So that's the first thing I think. I think mead, I think, you know, like you said, Beowulf, I think these big mead halls and Viking halls and everyone yep. just getting trashed and 
getting in there and going and fighting monsters. At a party. But yep. <laughs> it's definitely a much broader, broader aspect of that. So, you know, doing more research on it, coming up to this, you know, India, China, all these different cultures have had it and everyone's had their hands on it and touched it. Just like something like a coffee, maybe that you have all over the yeah. world. And I'm sure you have so many different styles that come from different places. And there's just uh, an endless amount of possibilities with it. And I think as an industry, even worldwide, we've just scratched the surface on that. I think people are just starting to understand that what we can do. I, I think every quarter, there are different things that we could do to help people with that. Um, but it's just, there's so much, there's so much about running this business and trying to launch off and do new projects where we're bringing in totally net new styles of mead we've never made before that have, you know, these, these additional worldwide context. We'll get there. We're trying to, to do, you know, as much as we can now. And so I think we've just scratched the surface and, and we're just one voice that's, that's out there trying to, to say, you know, this, what's in this glass I'm about to hand you is mead. And it may be completely different than the, what was in the glass for the last person who said that to you, but it's still fermented honey. We just had two completely different interpretations of how, how, how to finish that and serve it to you, which is just so exciting. It, it, there's still so much excitement in what we do because we, we have yet another week to open up the door and let people come in and, and hand them this glass and then be like, oh my God, I've never had meat before, but this stuff is great. Like I could see myself yeah. drinking this all the time. The majority of the people who come into the tap room, oddly enough, um, don't come with any historical context of mead. Um, we get a lot of people who come in. I always joke and say the best thing that he did was put the word cider in our name <laughs> <laughs> because people will come in. They're like, oh, I just want to try the cider. I'm here for the cider. And so, you know, our spiel, as we say, is always, well, we have draft style mead. It's 7% ABV, um, served cold, lightly carbonated, drinks a lot like a cider. And then you get the, well, what do you mean it drinks a lot like a cider? And I'm like, well, if you have a Concord grape cider, you're going to taste Concord grape and apple. Now remove the apple <laughs> and add maybe a little bit of honey at the end. And that's what it's going to taste like. So it's interesting because so many people come here. They've never had mead. They've never tried mead. And um, it's been great to kind of educate, especially our regulars who never in a million years thought they'd be like, I need to go get my weekly growler of mead. Um, but now they do, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was one of the first things that surprised me is I always thought of mead as kind of a flat beverage, like a wine. And so this, the Making Sunny Days, which I'm, I'm drinking here, and it, it's really a, a lovely flavor. It's a nice, like very drinkable. It's definitely something I could drink all the time. It has like that very nice, you know, it's not like a, a strong liquor flavor. It's just a really, really nice drink. Um, yeah, it uses like half the honey too, um, as opposed to a more stand, like a wine strength mead, mm -hmm. which actually allows us to keep the price point down, um, which was kind of all, you actually hit the nail on the head is our idea with the draft mead was to make it approachable. Like it's not a, I'm going to get a $50 bottle and maybe drink it seven years from now at my daughter's wedding. It's more, hey, we're going to get cheeseburgers Let's stop at AF <laughs> and get some Concord Grape Cruising Elm and have that with our dinner um, because it, it drink meat all the time. It's Vikings do. <laughs> <laughs> and this and this one has such a unique flavor on its own. I know 
Nick opened uh, a different one, but I'd love to talk about some of the other flavors that you have because you really do have a great variety. And that and that board behind you is awesome, by the way. Uh, whoever is that handwritten? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, so cool. our artist that's done the nicest ones is actually no longer with us. So it's it's we're actually suffering a bit of a deficiency post COVID. It actually turned out it was someone that was working for us part time, but had a brewery job across town that we had helped them get full-time job. And we told them earlier in the year, nope, that's where you need to be. Yep. Full-time job. You've got benefits. We'll, we'll take the sacrifice of not having you help us with our production. And we knew that the art was going to be one of the things we were going to lose too. But. Like the really fancy ones are him. Um, the ones that are super legible, but not as fancy were my niece. And then and the then, ones that are barely legible are yeah, mine. The ones that look like your math teacher wrote them are Jay's. <laughs> or, or your doctor, because you can't really read them. So so yeah, yeah do you have a specific flavor that you saw that I'm sure that you we'd love to just hear I think a little bit about the the breadth of variety that you have because of course there is a wide range of flavors we don't need to walk through all of them but maybe some of your most popular or some of your like most standout flavors like ones that you can't really find although you can't really find all meats everywhere um, right. but some of like your staple meads that are available all the time. Our most popular that's bottled is by far um, Cruising Elm, which is the Concord grape mead, uh, which was just a significant surprise to us that yeah. that would be like- Our flagship. It's, it's really, crazy. we, you know who loves Cruising Elm? So it's, it tastes like Welch's grape juice. It's, it's Concord grape concentrate. So it's real Concord grape. IPA drinkers love Cruising Elm. I don't know why. And my theory is that it hits a completely different part of their palate than the IPA does. So when they're looking to switch it up, it's a really good option for them. So I would say like draft style bottle, that's probably yeah, that's the most, our popular. most popular. Yeah. One. So the making sunny days that, that you're drinking is an example of one of our single honey varieties of mead that we make. So we have them in both of our product lines. So we have the draft mead line and then we have our honey wine line and we have single honey variations in both and that's a teaching tool the key here is is that most people don't know anything about the varieties of honey and that's merely because it's just not something that shows up in a culinary context for people if you if you a recipe has honey in it it usually says honey it doesn't matter what kind of honey yeah. it is go to the grocery store and get some which get the little bear i always thought honey either came in a bowl or a bear um <laughs> until we started making meat and surprise there's a lot more yeah. so <laughs> So what we decided to do there is in both product lines, we wanted to have single honey variations because we wanted to be able to show people what does a single honey variety actually taste like. And then, so we have, I believe it's eight in our draft line and we call them our maker series. So each one is a single honey variety. And then each of them is anchored, is the anchor for a family of meads that we make from it. So for example, the Making Sunny Days has additional meads that we make from it. One's called Fuzzier Still, which is that same mead flavored with peach. One called Ice Tea Break, which is white tea and peach. And then another one called Moon Tower Tea, which is strawberry, lemon, and green tea. So that whole entire family is based on the orange blossom mead. So they all have some citrusy play there. A flip side would be, we mentioned Cruising Elm, which is a Concord Great Mead. It's based on something called Maker's Legacy, which is a raspberry blossom mead so the single honey variety and what's been really fun about that is that people can pick up the similarities in them when they start recognizing you know the families of meads are like oh yeah that's one of the orange blossom ones so they kind of know what they're expecting it has been so fun to watch people like make that link 
that they, they get that these honeys are all different and we're using them in different ways to accent different flavors. Um, so. And to your point, that structure is what allows us to have all of that flexibility and have so many different flavors. Is So we're both from IT um, <laughs> backgrounds. Um, so we call it agile mead making. So basically we can react to the market really quickly. So he'll make a 200 gallon batch of what is like say making sunny days. And then once it's fermented, he can then make a determination of like what's what's selling really well right now? What have we not made in a while that we know that people are gonna to wanna to have again? And it gives us that flexibility to then break it into 50 gallon batches and then make those different, those different flavors that he mentioned. So it actually allows us, I think a huge amount of flexibility, more so maybe even than breweries to be able to quickly turn around and react to what the market is asking for. So, and then we have lots of fun seasonal stuff. So that, that this will have a stray into some other areas. So one that we just recently released is called Cobbled Together. So we used local honey. So a, a dark wildflower variation. Um, there's variation in the local honeys where it's not a particular type. So we don't get orange blossom honey from New Hampshire. We get what's called a wildflower, typically from Massachusetts and other, uh, other areas. However, once you go to places with acreage for like blueberries, for example, Maine is a good example. Um, you'll find that there are some farms that are being pollinated by beekeepers who they do actually get largely blueberry blossom honey back afterwards, which is distinct. But generally, it's, it's a, a, a mix that's just called wildflower. So we use the local wildflower honey and then local peaches, some ginger, allspice, and orange peels. So the goal here was like peach pie in a glass. So that's one where we actually made that entire batch from the ground up on its own with a specific type of honey and then added all the fruit to it later. And that was actually a new seasonal release for us this year. And it's actually gone pretty well. We've only got, I want to say maybe less than half that batch left and it's only been out for a couple of weeks, but the local peaches this year were actually really good. So people, people really, really like that. Um, another one that we have out right now that, that uh, people have been digging is lavender and lemon. So Lavender can be a controversial ingredient. I decided to, to run with this one because it's one that we had made at home a couple of times uh, right around Christmas in 2018. I thought at a minimum, it might be perceived better as a holiday flavor than it would be, you know, at any other random time of the year. And I was amazed at how quickly people actually said they loved it. We had people in here this weekend going, oh, I'm so glad this is back. I'm grabbing my growlers on the way out. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you really loved it that much. But, you know, it, it's, it was fun to see people grab onto an ingredient that what I've always said to people is if I use too much, you would have thought that your grandmother had just walked through the room with her fresh perfume on. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And you would have been like, Oh my God, this smells so funky. Like I can't drink this. Yeah. And people have always said it's, you got good balance with it. The lemon keeps it nice and bright. You know, we're using citrus in a culinary way. We understand that it's going to provide some acidity. You know, it, it will balance any of that residual sugar and give you a little bit of that pucker in the mouth with kind of setting you up like one sip leads to the second one because it's giving, mm -hmm. you know, it's refreshing your palate. And then that lemon is actually another fun little thread. We have a whole series of ones. We call them the lemonade series. And for example, lavender and lemon, hops and lemon, strawberries and lemon, raspberries and lemon, you know, blackberry so we, and lemon, blackberry and uh, ginger and lemon. Ginger and lemon. That's our Thanksgiving one, believe it or not. We, we rolled that out right before Thanksgiving in 2018. This is its third year coming back the week before Thanksgiving. People absolutely loved it for Thanksgiving. So yeah. we just decided it was our, our 
Thanksgiving seasonal. And I still don't, you know, people like ginger and lemon really why I'm like, because people said it worked really well. Like, and it's called, it's actually called because you asked, because we have a mead called with malice, which is one of my favorites, which is um, apple and ginger. And people really liked it. And the people who liked it, they're like, well, are you going to ever do one with like lemon and ginger? Are you going to do it with le-? more like, oh my, like enough. Okay. Enough people have asked for it. Yep. Apparently people want this. Um, and we made it and now it sells really well. Yeah. I would definitely say the lavender and lemon one, like you were asking about like unique kind of out there flavors that that is one. Um, we have one called the hipster, which is hibiscus flower and hops. Um, that's also extremely popular and kind of odd. We have a really, uh, let's call it unique one coming out this weekend. Um, we worked with a, there's a local tap room um, that we work with where we're on draft and they also own their own farm, their organic farm. And they said to us, hey, would you mind making some stuff specifically with, with stuff that we grow at the farm? And we said, fine. So the first one we made for them was raspberry and habanero, yep. which was a smash hit there. It sold like crazy. Um, the second one we made was uh, cucumber, lime, and basil, um, which sold well. And then this weekend, what's coming out is um, radish and mint. Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. So. And it, it's it's unique. People it have unique. asked, what does it smell and taste like? Radishes? Yeah. And they're like, really? It's got kind of a horseradishy nose to it. It's it's pretty pungent. It, it's yeah. I will, I will make the claim that I have enjoyed the opportunity to make these meads from these farm fresh ingredients, but I cannot claim that I have conquered the solution to making meads from vegetables because it, <laughs> I still feel like there's room to grow here. I just don't know exactly what I would do yeah. because I'm just, I've, these, these are first times with these ingredients. I, I, I eat them, but I don't know how to turn them into a beverage, you know, any better than I did. But the response has been great. People are willing to try it. They like the idea that it's hyper local and weird. So, you know, it, we, we get enough activity with it that it makes it it's worth it as yeah. a partnership to do. Someone checked in the cucumber lime basil one on untapped and it was the funniest review because the, the review was, this is weird in the most wonderful way ever. We're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> People love, love weird. It's true. People love weird. And this year, as far as the local stuff goes, we, we this is a fun COVID story for us. So earlier in the year, as, as COVID started setting in, you know, we're, we're looking around and we're like, all right, you know, what, what do we have on hand for ingredients? Like, what do we want to set for a production schedule? Um, with full knowledge that we had no idea how this was going to go. We had done takeout business before, but not to the degree that we, we would have needed to um, in order to stay alive, um, you know, being shut down in that way. It turns out our community rallied, um, which was great, but our immediate problem was is that we had stuff we couldn't get. Supply chain issues. Yeah, and yep. it, it got us scared a little bit about what to do. So one of the things was, is, you know, scramble around, figure out what we can make until the harvest season starts in, in, in June. And then let's just run around to all the area farms and grab as much local produce as we can when we can get it and be sure that we know we have some really fun stuff to do. You know, it's cheaper because I can take drive my car to the farm. I can pick the stuff in some cases so I can get exactly what I'm looking for. Um, but I also know I have it. Like I, I can create relationships or, or continue to extend relationships with some of these farms. Um, and I know I can get the product. It's not me waiting on the phone for someone like, well, yeah, I think I have in a warehouse over here in California and they should be able to ship it to you in a couple of weeks. And 
I, I just didn't want to waste my time that way. And I didn't want to get disappointed about getting my hopes up and being able to make certain things, yeah. you know, so it turns out that we've made more products from local produce, be it fruit or vegetables this year um, than we ever have before. And more local honey too. We, we ran into a new beekeeper to us last year and he supplied us with honey several times. So we, we've been able to do some more local pro projects that way. And I told people probably isn't going to change. I mean, it, local produce is more expensive, but all told we've saved ourselves a ton of time, not fighting with vendors and waiting for trucks and then having stuff not show up. So, you know, we may, we may just continue to extend that. It's and it also, it also helps out the local farms and stuff like yeah. that. Cause social media, we always post and let anyone who comes into the tap room know like, Hey, yeah, we got the peaches from, we got the peaches from Max apples, right in Londonderry. It's like four miles that way, go visit their farm stand. They still have fresh produce. So it's, it's been, it, that was turning a not great situation to put it lightly um, into something that was positive and kind of made us feel part of the, the larger community, especially from a, from a farming standpoint. And people so, definitely like that. And like you said, with the uh, local tap room that also has the farm and that it was a uh, raspberry habanero. Yeah, I remember that correctly. That sold yep. like crazy. I think a lot of people and us included love supporting local and, you know, it gives you that local pride and you're drinking something and doing it with everything being made here, as well as the produce being grown here that takes it up to a whole nother level, which I think people love. Now, yep. I know you guys also had some other interesting stuff. The buckwheat bonsai saw the <laughs> wood series. We can talk about that. And also hum using coffee is something I've never seen with anything uh, made before. Typically, like you're saying, it's all, you know, produce and it's uh, fruits and berries and things like that. So coffee is something completely different. So tell us about some of those different ones that you guys offer. So Hum was actually another collaboration with a local local place. Yep. Um, so there's a brewery here um, called Swift Current Brewing. Um, we are friends with the brewers. That's one of the cool things is you become friends with a lot of the people who are in the, in the brewing and craft beverage community, which is awesome. Um, and not only do they brew beer, but they also, at the time they were brewing cold brew coffee, like kegging cold brew coffee. Um, so Jason reached out to them and said, Hey, this is something that we've wanted to make. Um, could we get some cold brew coffee from you guys? And we got the cold brew coffee from them and three times. Yeah. Like three different times. And we were able to make, make hum from that hum's really cool because it's, I like the fact that it's finished with, um, avocado blossom honey which is one of my favorites. And that kind of gives it like a, a creamy finish at the end. Um, and kind of like a, it plays really well with the coffee because it has a, a darker, like a brown sugar almost kind of flavor to yeah, it. It actually looks and smells like molasses, which is really wild. I yep. thought it was molasses the first time I ever got some. I, I, I thought I'd gotten the wrong thing because I had never had avocado blossom honey before and didn't realize what it looked and tasted like. Um, but so if you can find it, buy it. If you find it, it is, it is the, from my perspective, the best cooking honey that you can buy. Like you need to make a marinade or honey on your asparagus, which is very good. Um, uh, it, avocado honey is the way to go. Yeah. And so with, with that, you know, having played around with these different honey varieties and made some coffee meads in the past, you know, we did coffee with chocolate and coffee with vanilla and coffee on its own. We wanted to do one coffee on its own, but we wanted the sweetening honey to help accentuate the coffee and having knowledge of the avocado blossom honey and like, oh, wow. Yeah. If we put those two things together. So the, the flavor you get at the end of a sip of hum is not just coffee. It's coffee plus that particular honey. But if you're unfamiliar with that honey, you won't know that. But you'll get this really complex, like 
dark, dark earthiness and, and a richness from it. And you're like, wow, that coffee is amazing. And then you find out, well, it's not just coffee. It's a particular honey as well. And that's always blown people's minds because pre-COVID, we had a honey tasting bar. So you could go over and get a sample of something. So they go over and grab a sample of the avocado blossom honey. And they're like, oh my God, I know exactly what part of this is this honey now. Yeah, absolutely. That works so well together. And it, it's this it's this creative thing where we've, we've, we've done these things because we've learned to do them and people, you know, really get onto the idea that we found great pairings. You know, yeah. we, we, we found two things that really went together very well. The wood series is another fun one. Um, barrels are our ingredients. You know, we, we treat a barrel like an ingredient. We know that it's going to impart flavor. Um, we just released a cider last week that was in a freshly dumped heaven hill bourbon barrel for 26 days and boy it smells and tastes like bourbon mm -hmm. it did not take long for that to happen which was a really fun thing to do because we've got another thing ready to go right in the barrel after it so you know less than a month of aging and, and we're able to you know to deliver that to it so we we see it as an ingredient we know that it's going to show up in the flavor at the end um you know so we kind of treat it the same way the wood series um, is our ability to demonstrate what's possible when you include barrel aging. Um, golden wood is one that we came out with earlier this year. It's a blend of four honeys. Um, it was two kinds of wildflower honey, avocado blossom, buckwheat blossom, and then it went in a four roses bourbon barrel for about nine months. And it smells and tastes a lot like bourbon does, but then when you actually get a sip of it, it's got some residual sweetness to it. So it's the bourbon cocktail. So it's not yeah. bourbon with that dry burn, it's the bourbon cocktail, like the Manhattan perhaps, which we're actually making a cocktail card to go with a gift set with Goldenwood in it on, on how to make a Goldenwood Manhattan. I frequently say that they're like, well, what does Goldenwood taste like? I'm like, it tastes the way you think bourbon's going to taste until you taste bourbon. It, like you smell a bourbon and you're like, oh, like sweet, so sweet and like and candy vanilla. and this is going to be great. And then you take a sip and you're like, so many lies. <laughs> <laughs> too dry, too strong. So I mean, I do. I love bourbon now, but you know, when you take that first sip of bourbon, I think the nose sometimes gives you a specific perception that's not necessarily there. And I know that's a battle that I've been fighting with Bianca trying to get her into some more whiskeys and things because that's my go-to. It's beer and bourbon are my two. Um, yep. And obviously beer runs a whole gamut of different styles, but with bourbon, there's usually a bit more of a clear cut, like, yeah, this is what a bourbon tastes like. And then you have different variations of whiskey, but yep. you know, just sipping it the first time you have it every, you know, if you try it once every six months, you're going to hate it all the time. Yep. I always tell Bianca, you got to try a little bit, take a little yourself. bit every night. You got to train yourself. And that's yep. what I did when I first started, because I knew there was something more. So many people love it. And there's such a complexity to it when you smell it. You're like, there, this has to taste good. So once yep. you get yourself past that burn and you kind of train yourself, it really does open this whole world. And I'm sure it's the same way, you know, getting into meat and things where, you know, look at the difference between two IPAs. If you take something like Harpoon IPA, for example, and compare it to something that comes out of, you know, a local place up here in Maine, Definitive Brewing or something, for example, they're two completely different things, even though they're both IPAs. Yeah. So when it comes to mead, people that, you know, kind of say, oh, I have mead. I've tried that. You know, even if you try a certain style of mead, you could try the exact same thing made by two different people in two places. It's going to taste completely different. So yeah. you really have to dig in, you know, really open yourself up to try as many as possible and figure out what you like and what you don't like to find, you know, the perfect one. Yep. That's very so true. So we are 
The Four Roses bourbon barrel just got emptied probably about two or three weeks ago. So batch two of something called Sugarwood. So this is this was a recipe that we played around with a couple times at home, and we we didn't barrel age it ever any of the times we did it at home, but we opted to do that with the first batch we did here because we felt like that was going to bring everything together. So this is a fun one. So we take multiple types of honey, some of which we caramelize. So we actually intentionally put it back in a in a, in a stock pot and start to cook it like we're making candy. And it will actually darken and, you know, enrich the flavor of it because you are actually starting to cook the sugars. And yes, of course you can cook it too long. You can burn it. Some people do that intentionally. There are some styles of mead that you would intentionally want to use a very, very caramelized, very cooked honey. Um, and then maple syrup. So we put all that together we ferment it. Then we throw it in a whiskey barrel take it out of the whiskey barrel and put vanilla beans. And then we finish it with maple syrup. Batch number two comes out in about three weeks. And we're really excited to have this one out. It's a different barrel. It's got different barrel character to it, which is one of those things we've, we prepped our fans for. Just like grape wines, some of the stuff that we make annually, every couple of years, they're not going to be the same. It's the same recipe, but our ingredients are going to vary. The vanilla beans are different. The maple syrup is different. The barrels are different. The aging time might be different. Um, so we prep people to believe that it's going to be sugar wood. You're going to recognize it, but you may find that you might like it better than version one, or you might like version two better. Uh, you know, it, it, you don't really know like which one until you try it, but it's going to be inspired by that same recipe, but it's going to have variations because of the different things that we've done to it. And that's what's been fun about the wood series is we've had several barrels in the mix, rye barrels, um, corn whiskey barrels from a distillery down in Brooklyn. Um, pretty much everything else we've gotten is coming out is come out of Kentucky, from what I from what I can recall. So we, we played around with different types of of you know spirits that are in there. We would like to play around with some different types of wood at some point. You know we've got some bar barrel contacts that could help us out with different types of wood. So and there's a whole world there, and we're just again scratching the surface with what we're what we're doing with effectively bourbon or whiskey barrels, but we could be bringing wine barrels into the mix, gin, tequila, port, you know, all kinds of different things. And um, so it really just waiting for the project that needs a particular type of barrel and, and, and add some barrels to, to the, to the, uh, the warehouse out back and get them filled up. Yep. And the other one that I asked about too, the buckwheat. So yep. getting back to what we were talking about earlier, how meat can really come from, you know, all different cultures and all different areas around the world. When I think buckwheat, I think Japan, I think noodles, uh, buckwheat noodles specifically. And um, that's, I believe the meat you have is called the buckwheat bonsai. So really kind of fitting in with that style. So tell us about buckwheat honey, for example, and how the yep. flavor of that differs from some of the others you described and how that really shows up in that meat. Uh, first, let's let's say that the name of Buckwheat Bonsai, because we we are from a different generation, um, comes from a really bad sci-fi movie called Buckaroo Bonsai. That's where the name comes from. Um, he recommends it. Margot does not. Yeah, I'm into sci-fi movies, and this is a bad one from the '80s. And then the reference to to to, to bonsai there, I specifically spelled it um, so that it would infer the bonsai tree because it is in the wood series. So I was using a different variation on something that would get you back to a tree or, you know, a trunk that would have wood in it because I do want our barrel aged ones to kind of jump out as something wood in the name. So you know that that's part of the, but part buck, of the process. Buckwheat honey is very controversial 
in the mead world. It can be. Very controversial. <laughs> it's, um, it's very aromatic. And yes. there are multiple kinds. Buckwheat, at least in the United States, there's an Eastern variation and a Western variation. There's, I would say there's a debate on whether or not both can make a good buckwheat honey. Some folks hold to the Western style and think that the Eastern style is too rich and too dark. Some people are the opposite. Um, I've used both and I don't necessarily have a preference, but what I can tell you is, is that it has a lot of character and it will, it will lay that character out for you every single time you use it. It mm -hmm. is no doubt. Um, you know, we, we love it. We actually just made two. Uh, yeah, let me think about this for a second. I think it's two meads. The cherry one and the blueberry one. Yep. Um, with buckwheat honey. And so just like brewers use character malts. So you've got your concept of your base malt. So this is going to be your grain. Your predominant part of your, your grain sugar is going to come from this, this, this generally generic's not the right word, but it, it's effectively more uh, universal. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a baseline grain. So then a lot of recipes, think about a stout recipe, for example, you're going to have several darker colored grains in there that are intended to provide color, but also different types of flavors, roasty flavor, chocolate, some other dark flavors. So honey can be used the same way. So buckwheat honey, I always tell people that optimally, I find it as a as a blending. Honey. So I would use some percentage of my total honey as buckwheat because it has so much character in it, you can use it in a really restrained way and it still has a lot of character in it. Yeah. We've done all buckwheat ferments before and they're fantastic, but they're- Specific. Yeah, they're specific. And, and the aroma, like if, if your glass is this big around, the aroma is about that big around. <laughs> and it's just, it, which is great because it, it, when it's made well, you smell it going, oh my God, this is wonderful. It's got all this, these-, these Warm crazy and grainy and yeah. yeah. But some variations of it and some fermentation processes can also accentuate some more animal character like horse blanket or wet, dirty straw, which can be really off-putting. People sometimes mm. say like barnyard. <laughs> so it can, be, it can be quite controversial. I really have never found that outcome from any of the buckwheat ferments that I've done. But in the last two years as a home brewer. And then since here at ancient fire, we've not done hundred percent buckwheat for men. It's always been somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 25% of the overall honey. So I think we took those lessons from the ones that we made back in the day and said, you know, we're, we're not going to go overboard with this because it goes wrong more often than it goes right in the sense that if it's too much buckwheat, it's going to narrow the audience down for it. So buckwheat bonsai is a wildflower and buckwheat mead that was also had apple in it. So it went into the barrel at 18% and came out of the barrel right around that same and then got finished down to about 15 and a half percent. So it's got this really nice, you know, big full richness to it. Plenty of apple tartness, some apple acidity, and then rye barrel character that is, is not, it's the least aggressive of all the barrel beads that we've done but pleasantly so, like it really married together with what we were going, we let the apple, let the buckwheat honey really show through. It kind of tastes to me, it's always kind of tastes like, um, like lighter buckwheat pancakes with like, if you made an apple sauce, like an apple syrup, syrup yeah. on the side, 
um, with rye, with like whiskey and like put it over the, I'm so hungry. But you put that over the pancake, like to me, that's always what it's kind of tasted like. I think the apple plays really well with it. Cause you kind of feel it's like drinking a warm, sunny day, walking through an orchard. It's kind of how I feel about it. Look at that. That's very picturesque. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no. very picturesque. It's got enough strength to it as well. It's it's a winter warmer. You you you're, you can absolutely sit and sip on it. I I hope some folks are sitting in front of the fireplace over the next couple of months with a glass of it because it's it's a really enjoyable way to spend a little while. And it's pretty it's pretty po- it is pretty popular. So that's one of two. So that and Goldenwood are going to be in a gift set um, along with glassware, and then for that particular gift set, a cocktail card for each. So we've got a Goldenwood Manhattan, and then. I couldn't find the appropriate cocktail to really say it was a riff on. I think the closest is probably like a Boulevardier. So it's another whiskey cocktail that's got some, you know, different ingredients in it. Not so much a Manhattan either, kind of a, you know, a slightly different riff on it. But you thought it'd be fun to give people the cocktail cards with the idea that you've got two glasses, two bottles of meat. Now you just need a, gla- a bottle of bourbon and some bitters and you're ready to go. I would say if you're looking to appreciate bourbon or whiskey, um, a really good Manhattan is a good gateway drink. Yes. <laughs> yep. And that's, that's perfect because this will be going up and I believe it's the second week in December. So we'll be right on time for gifting. So for everybody listening, we'll put the links below so that you can check them out and get gifts for people on your list. Um, and before we wrap, we would love for you to share where everybody can find and follow you online and on social media. Absolutely. So our website is definitely a place that people should go and, and check out what's going on. That's ancientfirewines.com. Um, two real key areas there. One's going to be the takeout store for anybody looking to grab a, a, a takeout order um, from here at the meadery. Um, there'll be a link there. And then there's also one where you can request a reservation for tables. So during COVID times, we are still managing tables and reservations. We do also ship the 37 states. So you can actually find a link on our website as well that will take you to our direct shipping store. So if you're in one of our 37 states, we can ship to you have a set of products that you can order from there as well. You can find us on Facebook, Ancient Fire Mead Insider. Uh, you can find us at Delicious AF Mead on Instagram and Delicious AF on Twitter. We love it. And we'll have links in the description below to your website, to your social. So it's easy for you to find um, any of the listeners. Definitely get on there. Get yourself some mead. I know a lot of the ones that we talked about tonight, I plan on getting on and ordering because I have to try some of these that you guys talked up, uh, especially the coffee and that buckwheat one too. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to come on and talk to us. We had so much fun. We look forward to talking to you again in the future. And thanks again for the meet. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Be sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.